Morning. How are we? Great. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I better move that. I will hit it. Hey, my name is R.D., and I'm uh, one of the pastors here on uh, staff. And uh, if uh, you weren't here last night, which I'm guessing most of you weren't, which is why you're here today. Um, we had a great baptism service, which we have a great video for. We had 13 people uh, who planned on getting baptized and one person who showed up who didn't plan on getting baptized but got baptized. And uh, so we had a, a spontaneous baptism, which was fantastic. And uh, it, was just, it was just so awesome and just so great. And uh, it was just good. So we have a video for that that will be at the end of the, uh, the service. And you can see just celebrate with those who got, <clears throat> who got baptized. Well, we're in a series within a series. So we're in the Gospel of Luke. Yes, we are still in the Gospel of Luke. It's a long gospel. And uh, we're in chapter 14. And in a series within the series is called Follow and trying to find the way how we can follow Jesus because uh, it's actually not always that easy. And so we're going to look at a passage today, kind of a long passage, but one that um, I think is going to help us just in a lot of ways. At least I hope, I hope it does. Um, so let's just start. Um, verse 1, Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, which is Saturday, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Okay, stop there. I promise I won't stop every verse, but... <clears throat> Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Pharisees, right, if you grew up in the church, know anything about Pharisees, they're not always portrayed in the best light, right? They look at Jesus and they say, this guy is doing some interesting things, but he's also a blasphemer because he claims to be God. And that's impossible because there's only one God, Yahweh, and this cannot possibly be him. This man is not God, and he claims crazy things. So when it says that they watched him as he came into a dinner, it doesn't mean they just looked at him to kind of see what he looked like. Okay. They looked at him to watch him and to study him in order that they could then trip him up, right? Because they had this plan kind of set for him. And so their, their gaze is upon him and they're just staring at him, right? In, a, in more of an evil way than an innocuous way. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body, which is called, it's called dropsy. Well, surprise, what's this guy doing here? <laughs> Right? Do you think the Pharisees invited him because they loved him? Class? <laughs> no. Right. Good. They did not. Right? This man is not there because he has a seat at the table. He is there to be used as a means to an end to make Jesus be forced to possibly heal on the Sabbath, which um, was against the law. Though apparently Jesus had not got that memo because he's about to heal him. And so they're using this man, not in a, in a love, not to maybe have Jesus touch him and heal him, but they're using him as an example to trap Jesus, how far their hearts are from the heart of God, who they say that they love. This man swelling up his body, dropsy, is, is when you, you can drink a lot of water, but um, you can't actually be filled by it. And so your body just fills with fluids, and so you're very bloated. So it's a very painful disease, right? And a painful condition of a disease with, with your kidneys, and so this man's just there. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Boom. Checkmate. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Checkmate again. 
right? He's like, if you guys had an ox, which was very, like not just an animal you had for fun, like a pet, okay, was something you needed, or a child that fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, the holy day, Saturday, for the people of Israel, would you not pick it up, right? Would you really say, no, sorry, son, I'll see you on Sunday, right? I can't work on Saturday. It's holy to the Lord. Jesus is like, you guys are crazy. Of course you would do that. Why can't I heal this man? Why don't you want him to be healed? And so then Jesus launches into another conversation against the people at the table. And we'll summarize the next few verses. He basically says, says hey, um, I noticed when you all came into this dinner party, everybody tried to take the seats of honor, which would be at the left side and the right side of the host. Whoever invited them, you want to sit at his left side and his right side. He's like, I see everybody's kind of jockeying for this position. Everybody's trying to be at the number one position, be on the A team. That's not how you should operate. That's not how you should live your life is trying to have the seat of honor. You should wait because someone more important than you may come and you can give them your seat. And so he kind of goes on this and he talks about if you have a wedding, how you invite people and this kind of thing. And we'll talk more about that. But this little diatribe ends here in verse 11. And he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Take not the first seat, but the second, the third, the fourth, or the fifth seat. Because someone else more important than you may come. Be humble. Well, the next passage kind of just um, elaborates on this idea, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, the, the guy who invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus says, hey, who do you invite to your parties? Who do you invite to your gatherings? Because at this table, uh, the host has invited the Pharisees and the elite of society. And that's what, what you would do. Everybody who was anybody was kind of at this gathering. He says, actually, you shouldn't operate like that. You shouldn't just live your life so that people will repay you because that's a selfish life. Because you're loving them so they will love you back, which is not selfless. But it's selfish because you're loving them so they can give you something. Right, he said, you've got a whole different list now. Right, when you send out your save the date for your wedding, everybody's on it. Right, when my wife and I got married, we sent out a save the date. And uh, I remember we were at uh, Panera and uh, we were making a list and we could invite like 200, 250 people to our wedding. And uh, you know, somehow I actually knew more people than that, which is amazing. And so we could invite everybody. And so we made an A list, a B list, and a C list. I know, sounds terrible, right? You've done it, don't lie. You're all hypocrites. <laughs> You've, you had to, right? You just can't invite everybody, right? Like in complete disobedience of the teaching. But, and uh, so we had like an A-list. And so we had, you know, obviously my dad, I think he's going to be on the A-list. You have all the people that are going to be on the A-list. And you got to get through all of that and there's still some room. So you kind of go to the B-list. Okay, who do we really want from this list, right? And people on the C-list are just, there's no chance. You just put them on there like to be nice kind of, you know. And they have no chance of, no chance of getting there, right? And so we had an A-list, a B-list, and a C-list. And, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of nice having the power. And it kind of went to my head a little bit. I won't lie to you. It's like, you'll never be at our party, you know. And it was just like, Emily's like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, this is the smallest amount of power I've ever seen go to someone's head in my life. And so this is all that I have right now. And so it was, yeah, it was wheels off. And um, at the 
after we got married, uh, before then, we were in a, a community of singles in Dallas. And uh, all, like, all the time, there'd be, there'd be weddings because people would meet each other, you know, and then they'd get married. It was like awesome. And uh, you get invited to all these, all these weddings. And I remember, I remember when I found out I wasn't as popular as I, as I thought I was. And, uh, you know, I had known this couple for a while. And Emily, who I wasn't dating yet, got invited to this wedding. And all of my friends that I kind of ran with got invited to this party, uh, to the wedding. And I remember just thinking, man, everybody's already got their save the date. And they're talking about it, of all the stuff. And I was just like, maybe mine just got, like, lost in the mail. You know, should I, like, go up to the bride or the groom and just kind of say, hey, Guys, I know, it, I know that it just got lost, right? That, that's why I don't have one in my, in my mailbox. And it's like, what do you, like, do I just show up at the wedding? Would that be too much? Would that be like, I know you meant to invite me, but I have blessed you now with my presence, right? Is that, or was it like, and so they got married on a Sunday night, which is when we have our singles group meeting. And so usually we have like 100 people at the singles group. That night we had like 10 people there because everybody was at the wedding, except for the rejects and the losers, right? <laughs> like me, who was there. And so I pretty much ran the whole night. And uh, they called me like, Rodi, can you run the night? I was like, yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> like, is there anyone else? No. No, there's not really anybody else. Can you do it, right? It's, it, it, we, we found out like a year later when we got to know this couple more, we were telling them, hey, you know, we had an A, B, C list for our wedding. And they were like, you know what? We had an A, B, and C list for our wedding too. And I was like, Really? Was I, was I on the A list and then you forgot or was I on the C list? And they're like, or do you on the C list? It's like, was it a small wedding? Is that why? You know, and they're like, not really. <laughs> Still working through it right now in front of you. It's okay. Come on. Like you want to be on the C list. Nobody wants, no actor wants to be on the B list, right? You want to be on the A list. And it's kind of nice when you have the power. It's not, it's not as nice when you realize that there are just people, some people that don't want you at, at their things, right? And, and how we leverage relationships is that we have tiers of relationships, right? And Jesus says, basically, you live your life. And even the people that you love, you use to gain something or to get something, Right? Even in your marriage relationships, right? People you love the most in the world, do you sometimes love them selfishly? Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, this still happens. This is not like something I'm over. But early on in our marriage especially, I would like be like, okay, I'm going to serve Emily and do this, you know, so that she will then serve me. Right? And so I could say, I'm serving her like crazy. But then I would get so upset when she wouldn't serve me back. Right? That's living so people will repay you. And so she'd come home or whatever, and I'd be like, you know, she, I'd done the dishes or cleaned the house and, you know, just not a word. And I'd just kind of be, I'd be getting angry. And I'd be like, hey, babe, the dishes, you know, like, did you see? And she'd be like, oh, thanks so much for doing them. And I'd be like, nope, need more. <laughs> like, need, why? Right, because we're selfish. Because sometimes even the people we love the most, we only love so they will do things for us. And Jesus says, if you live your life that, that way, it shows that you haven't actually met Jesus really. Right? If you only invite people into your life so that they will invite you to things in their life, you aren't loving them. You aren't loving them. Can you imagine everyone at the table feeling awkward? Feeling like everyone around the table is going to invite us to their own parties. And Jesus, not afraid of conflict, is just like laying it down. And so at this moment, you have like awkward silence. It's like my wife and her family were having a, a political discussion, which can be very exciting. And they're kind of going back and forth, and, and all of a sudden... Oh, one of the ants, you know, there's always that ant, 
There always is. She goes, well, thank God that we're all Republicans, right? <laughs> She's never wise to say. And so somebody's hand in the family raised up and was like, well, not all of us are. You talk about awkward silence. <laughs> you talk about like, okay, can someone, can we pass the ketchup? Oh, my gosh, why did you say that, <laughs> right? And in this moment, the silence at this table, after Jesus had just laid down the gauntlet saying, everyone at this party is not who you should be inviting to your parties. And so somebody speaks up. And one guy at the table says, right, yes, blessed is the one who will be at the feast in the kingdom of God, right? Pass the fish, <laughs> okay, pass. Can we please move on? This man is making things very awkward for all of us. But Jesus doesn't care about that, Right? He doesn't care. And so we have in verse 15, silence, silence, Pharisees looking around at each other like we are feeling very small. Jesus says, there will be a resurrection of the righteous. Somebody chimes in, yes, blessed are those who will be at the resurrection of the righteous, who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That is us, you know. What is the feast? What is this guy talking about? This will be on the screen. Isaiah 25 um, says, says this. This is the feast. So at the new heaven and new earth, this is what it looks like. When, when Jesus Christ returns, th this is the feast that they're, they're hoping will happen one day. Verse 6, on this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, hmm? Lord of hosts, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats. There'll probably be vegetables too. Okay, vegetables too. And the finest of wines, the best wine you've ever had. Okay, if you've never had wine before, you'll have it in heaven. <laughs> You'll have like the best, the best of everything. And who's going to be making it all? The Lord. The Lord is going to be making it all. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What a day that will be be on that day. This, this Pharisee is saying, we, we can't wait for that day. Jesus says at the resurrection of the righteous, this is what that day will be like. The Lord himself will prepare a rich food. This will be a feast of fulfillment where you're eating and drinking and enjoying life. There's delight, there's satisfaction that's complete and full, unlike what you and I experience now. So that right now, right, even in our best day, we still feel a little sad because we're not made for this world, Right? And yet on this, in, in this world, right, I love what Isaiah says. He's looking forward. He says, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. So right now there's, there's this fog, there's this shroud that separates heaven from earth. But one day the shroud will be removed and heaven, heaven will fully come on the earth and it will be one. And we will be able to see him face to face. It's Revelation 22. The great hope of your and my life is that we will see the Lord face to face. We will see him face to face. And if that does not give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. If you sit here and say, wonderful, what is the next point? <laughs> then you don't get it, right? You don't, you don't get it. Because this is, what's this is the future that we have. But who gets to be there? Not everybody. Not everybody gets to be there. The, the, the Pharisee who speaks up says, I can't wait for that feast. Let's just beam us up right now, Lord, because it's going to be everybody at this table, right? We're the righteous ones. We're the, the sons of Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. 
many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise. Okay, some of you went to church. Fantastic. <laughs> let's just, we say a song all the time. I had no idea what it meant. It's like, who is Father Abraham? All these crazy kids. <laughs> Right, they're thinking, we're sons of Father Abraham. We're the children of Israel. We will get to be at this feast because we're righteous by our birth. We're the chosen ones. Everyone else doesn't get to be at the table, doesn't get to be at the feast. And Jesus in that moment could have said, you are right. You guys get to be there because you are Abraham's children. But what does Jesus say? Well, he tells a parable, which is usually bad news <laughs> for the people around the table. Here's what he says. And listen, in response, in response to Jesus saying there is a resurrection of the righteous and a man saying we will be there, this is the parable Jesus tells. Verse 16, a certain man, a certain man, remember him, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. Oh, interesting. And invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married so I can't come. Okay. So here's what happens. You have a man who embodies the first part of verse 12, right? When Jesus says, when you give a luncheon, don't invite the rich or your neighbors. This is exactly what the man, the certain man has done. He, he's invited to his party, the A-list, right? And we know that because if you have a field or you can buy oxen, then you have money. And so in the ancient world, you would have two invitations. One would go out months in advance so that you would know how many people were coming to your party because you would cook food the day of. And then on the day of the party, because there weren't cell phones, right? There wasn't a Facebook invite. You had no idea what time the party was. And so on the day of the party or the banquet, a, a servant would go to the house of, or of every single person and would say, hey, the banquet is at 9 a.m. The banquet is at 6 p.m. The banquet is at 3 p.m. And no one would ever say, I can't come. If you've accepted the first invitation, it would be beyond rude to say no to the second invitation. It, it would just be a personal rejection of the host. And so this host, he's invited all his friends, so he thought. He invited the A-list, but what he didn't realize is that he was on the C-list, <laughs> and they didn't want to come. They didn't want to come, right? Here, the, the excuses are this. I love them because they're so mundane and boring, and yet they're just so normal, right? They're not bad things. They're just things that people love more than God, which can be most things. The first person says, I just bought a field, so I must go see it. Please excuse me. Will the field be there tomorrow? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right, it's a fake excuse, right? He, he doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to come to the party. The second one says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out, which you never would do. You would always try them out before you bought them. It's another fake excuse. The third one said, I just got married, so I can't come. Which I'm not entirely sure what that's about, but he can't come because he's married, right? They just love each other so much, they can't even leave the house. Like, you know what, I can't come to the party. I, I cannot come. Which actually, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you got married, you didn't have to serve in the military. You pretty much got to stay home for a full year if you got married in the Old Testament. That's how you do it. <laughs> but he's using that as an excuse, right? He's using this as an excuse. Because he's not being asked to serve in the army. He's being asked to come to a party. And so here what we have are just regular excuses that you and I make, and we'll relate this parable now to the Lord, where we say, you know what? 
I know, God, that you're doing all these things, but I would just rather not come. And so Jesus says, you know what? What happens? We often, we love our possessions more than we love God. All right? We love our fields. We love our money. We love our businesses. We love our relationships. We love these things more than God. And so we just say we're too busy or our hearts are just not interested in the things of God. And so we say, thanks for the invite. I'm good. I'd rather not come to the party. Right? Anything or anything or anyone that you love more than God is your God. Right? That, that's what it is. Right? That's all an idol is. It's something that you look to and say, if I can just have that, if I can just possess, possess that, whether it's the affection of someone or, or it's achieving something in business or it's having the best looking house, right? Whatever it is, if you say, if I can just have that, then I will have everything. And Jesus says, you are too concerned with earthly things and not concerned with the king of the entire earth who invites you to a banquet. Right? You, can, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if your life is filled with excuses about why you aren't pursuing God. If there is a God, you owe him everything. Right? He's not your co-pilot. You're like in the back of the, I'm in the back of the plane. Please don't give me the wheel. <laughs> right? If there is a God, you owe him everything. You don't owe him 60%. You don't owe him 70%. You owe him everything. And if, and if right, we are not pursuing God, if we're not in our lives actually chasing after the things of God, then why would God say to us, come in, everything is now ready. You spent your entire life pursuing other things, but you know what? It's all good. Come on in. Guys, I, that will not happen. It will not happen. And the parable serves as an example here, right? Being married is not a bad thing, is it? Having a field is not a bad thing, is it? These are good examples. These are good things. But this, the subtle thing is when you make a good thing the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing because it's a God thing, right? God's on the throne. And when you roll up anything on the throne besides God, everything in your life will begin to break down. And oftentimes it's the people and the things that we love the most that we look to and say. We wouldn't maybe say it, and even now you would say, well, that's not my God. But if it got taken from you tonight, how would you feel? All right? What are you building your life on? Jesus says if you're building your life on these things, you can't come. You just can't come. Not only does the, the certain man here in the, represent the Lord in a certain way, but he also represents the, a certain man. And he gets angry naturally, right? That's verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry. Can you imagine? Yes, he became angry. Everyone rejected him. He's been personally rejected. He thought he was on the A-list, and then no one apparently likes him. Right? How, how would you feel? Would you get angry? No. What would you do with your anger? Mm. What does this man do? It's very interesting. He does something very crazy. He actually lives out Jesus' parable in verses 12 through 14. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What? <laughs> Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. What has happened here? How has this man gone from inviting the A-list, inviting all the people that Jesus says not to invite, to then somehow when he gets angry and when he gets rejected saying, you know what, 
Instead of just getting angry and trying to get even with everyone, I'm actually going to open up my eyes to a whole new world and invite the people no one will invite. Invite people to my party who can never repay me, and I know they can't repay me. Right? This is what happens, right? He actually embodies the teaching of 12 through 14. Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And here we have an example of this man doing it. How does that happen? Right? How does he go from being in this world to saying, you know what, actually my life is about something else? Well, he was changed. It's implicit in the, par- in the parable, but it's explicit in the Bible. The only way right, that you and I can have eyes to see the world as God sees it is if you and I have our hearts changed. To see the world as God sees it. Right? Because we naturally live our lives inviting people to things and using people so that they will then give back to us. And this man has been living his whole life that way. He has an epiphany, we might say, obviously with the Lord in some way. He says, you know what? I'm going to turn my anger into grace. I'm going to turn my anger into selfless love. I'm going to invite people to my table who don't even have a table. And you know what? They can never pay me back, and that's okay. Because my life's actually not about me. And my table's not actually about me. It's, just, it's unbelievable. He's transformed. What happened? Mike, don't you want to be like this? Don't you want to be people like this? I know you do. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Right, how, how do we go from naturally being people who say, I'm just using people to actually have eyes to see the lost and the poor and the least among us, to see people who naturally shouldn't be at our table and actually invite them to our table. How, how did, how, what happened to this man in the parable? Well, I think it's implicit, but I think it's explicit in the entire teaching of the Bible. The only way you can be changed is if Jesus Christ grabs hold of your heart and changes you from the inside out. Guys, we are naturally selfish. I know. <laughs> RD, you're laying it on pretty thick. I know. <laughs> I know. But we are. We're nat- like we're naturally selfish. You don't have to be taught how to be selfish. I have twin daughters who are 16 months old. I love them. They're cute. But, man, they're wicked. <laughs> I said that last night on the, on the way home. Emily was like, you know you called your daughters wicked last night. And I was like, yeah, but I call them cute too. She was like, I know, but just make sure you say cute tomorrow when you say it. All right, people are going to be worried about you as a father. I will say, okay, that's helpful. Thank you, babe. <laughs> so they're cute, but they're like at nine months old. They, we would buy them both the same toy, right? The exact same toy, the exact same toy. And Maisie would have it and then see Camille has it. Maisie would walk over to Camille and just rip it out of her mouth and just grab it. And then Camille start crying, right? What, like, why? I can't mind this. And they would just go back and forth. And they would take things from each other. Well, where did they learn that? Right? Did they, did they see my wife on the couch with the remote control and me just walk over to her and grab it and rip it out of her hand and just go, mine? <laughs> and amazing Camille were like, dad just took from mom. That's how we should live, right? That, that's what we should do, right? Now, I'm not saying sometimes I don't take the remote from my wife's hand, but I don't just be like, you know, and then she starts crying and she runs away. Right? Where, where do, where do nine-month-old kids learn how to steal and how to take? But they don't learn it because they're born that way. 
They just are, right? You don't have to teach a kid, right, how to steal. You have to teach them how to share. Why? Because our hearts are broken. We are naturally selfish. And it's kind of cute and fun when you're nine months old. It is devastating when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 60, and you think life is about you. But it starts when you're just very young, right? We use people all the time. We use people we love all the time. Guys, I know. We know we should read our Bible, right? I could sit up here and all of you would say, and I get emails like, thanks for that word. I know I should read my Bible. Like, we know we should, right? We know we should care for the poor. We have all these things we know how to do. Right, in the self-help movement, which is just ridiculous, right, there are books and books, right, politicians write books, uh, sociologists write books, self-help gurus write books about how you should live, how you should live, how you should live. And the problem is that basically what we know how we should live, we just can't do it, can we? We can't do it. What we don't need is for one more person to tell us this is how you should live. What we need is someone who can give us the power to live, the life inside of us we don't have the power to live. That's, we need someone to take hold of us, heal us, and send us out changed. Because the answer to the problems in your life is not in here. It's not in you. It comes from outside, and it comes in you, and it smashes up against you, and it changes you. And it keeps changing you. That's the gospel. The gospel is on a one-time decision. It is an all-the-time dependence. And you keep going back to it. And so what you and I need is not for you to hear another message about how you can be awesome because you can't. You're going to fail. But there's someone who can take your failure and redeem it. Remember the beginning of the story. There's a man with dropsy in verses 1 through 4. There's this man sitting at the table there, and he has, um, he has dropsy. And dropsy is actually this interesting, it's a condition that signifies you have a, a disease. It's not a disease in and of itself. Um, you have some other problem with your body, which is why you can't be satisfied with, with just drinking water. So the man with dropsy would be drinking water and water, but he'd never be satisfied, which is why he keeps getting bloated, but he can't actually be filled by it. And actually, in, in ancient times, they would use the word dropsy to describe other kinds of people that had insatiable thirst for money, power, possessions, or things. Say, that is a man or a woman with dropsy. And so the Pharisees think that, look at this man here with dropsy. He can't even drink enough water. He's never satisfied. Then Jesus says, all of you have dropsy. All of you can't be satisfied. All of you are looking in the wrong wells. All of you are looking in the wrong places. Guys, all of us, all of us are too. And what we need is not to just look in all these wrong places. We need Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, to take hold of us and to heal us and to send us out with new eyes and a new heart. And good news, that's what he does. Verse 4. But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We're passive. Jesus is active. We don't do it. He does it for us. We can't do it. We can't do it. Right? You'll never change. You'll never change unless you've been changed by Jesus. You just won't. And if you do for a little bit, it won't be sustainable. It just won't be. There's only one person with the power to give your life meaning. There's only one person with the power. And his name is Jesus Christ. How does Jesus do this? Well, a couple of verses will just make it very clear as we wrap up. Um, 
2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is how the righteousness comes into us. I just, I love this verse so much. It'll be on the screen. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we get to be at the resurrection of the righteous, right? We don't have righteousness in ourselves. RD is a pastor. I can't give anyone righteousness. I, nothing in me is going to help anybody. Jesus Christ freely gives us his righteousness. And so now we wear it because of his grace. And because of that, we inherit the righteousness of God. God did this. God made Jesus who had no sin be sin for you and I so that you and I could become the righteousness of God, so that you and I could sit at the feast that God himself is preparing for us. We don't pull up a chair and say, thanks, you must have forgot about me. God pulls up a chair and said, I didn't forget about you. I knew you were coming all along. How well? Second Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 He himself, Jesus, it's usually always Jesus. <laughs> he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He himself, he bore our sins. He bore all of it, all the things you loved more than God, all the ways you haven't kept the law, everything you've done, things you haven't done. He bears all of that on himself so that you and I could die to our former life and now live for our future life, which has actually come into the present by his grace. He gives us the power to live for righteousness. He gives us the ability to do it because by his wounds, you and I have been healed. We have an alien righteousness that has come into us by the love of Jesus. So you and I have the power to now live our lives. This is how you have a seat at the table, right? And I talk with people all the time sometimes, you know, some more religious people or people go up in the church and they're like, R.D., I know, right? And some of you may be saying, I know, rah, rah, <laughs> I have a seat at the table. But I, you maybe wouldn't say this, but you're thinking, I mean, I'm not that surprised, <laughs> right? Now, Steve, I, he's at the table, <laughs> right? How did you get here, <laughs> right? And we can often be surprised by other people that are in God's grace. Listen. No one should be more surprised that God initiated a relationship with you than you. No one should be. <laughs> no one should be. If you do not marvel at the miracle of your conversion, then you're going to spend your life bitter and angry and just not, not having the fullness that is there in Jesus. And you'll be at the table and you'll say, yeah, I mean, I know, but I kind of helped and... <laughs> He didn't do anything. In fact, all you've contributed to the table is that you shouldn't be at the table. All right, that's what you've done. That's all that we have done. There's room. I love, I love in, the, in the passage, it just says this. And so um, I, I just, I know in a room this size, there are plenty of people in here who aren't Christians. There are people in here who think they're Christians and aren't. <laughs> and I just, I just want to say, right, there is no way to the table of God's grace outside of trusting in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no other way. And so Jesus says, go out into right, the city. Go out into the world and compel people to come in because you cannot outrun. You cannot outsin the cross of Jesus Christ. Whatever sin that you're in, whatever sin you've come from, it doesn't matter because the cross stands over it. Like it stands over it. And if you're a Christian already, you say, I know that. You don't know it if you say you know it. 
Keep marveling at the grace of Jesus. Have your heart gripped by that, that you and I have a seat at the table. That's how you can follow Jesus into the streets, into our city. That's how you can look at people differently because you say, God saved me by grace, not by my, how awesome I was. And so I can't look down on anybody because the table of the feast is completely equal ground. And there's more and more and more room. The host says, my, my house is not full yet. My house is not full yet. And so we baptized people last night. We baptized people last night. There's more room. You know, they say that about 82,000 people become Christians every day. 82,000 people become Christians every single day. It's about 2 million a month. God is on the move. There is more and more and more room. Jesus Christ is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for century after century after century after century after century. He is not done. He is not finished. He saves you by his grace, and he invites you to not just have a seat at the table, but become a host yourself and invite other people to the table and say, there's room at my dinner table. There's room at my lunch table. Look, right, at Thanksgiving, you can invite your family, okay? <laughs> Our D said not to invite family. Okay, I didn't say that. I'm just saying, is there margin in your life to love people who cannot love you back? Right? This man invites people who can never pay him back. I wonder where he got that idea from. Right? I wonder who modeled that for him. Jesus Christ saves you, and he does not say, okay, R.D., now you got 80 years. Start paying. <laughs> he says, I saved you. I knew everything about you. And go out into the world and be my hands and feet. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And guys, if you're not doing it in the power of the, author, the, power of the Spirit, then it's pointless. Until the end of all things, or better said, the beginning of all things, when you and I, those of us in Christ, on that day, all that God has done through centuries and centuries and centuries, saving and rescuing people, this is what we'll say together. In fact, let's say it together. It'll be on the screen. Let's say it. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father. No one's more surprised that I preach than me. No one's more surprised that I have a seat than me. Not by works, not by might, but by the Spirit. Father, I pray for every one of us here, wherever we are, that we would know the weight and depth of our sin and also the depth of your grace and mercy for us. Father, would we be like the certain man who lived his life so others would love him and found one who loved him for who he was. Father, only in the power of the gospel can we be changed. I pray for everyone here, you would give us that power. It's available. There's more room. There's more room. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.